I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the theme of a compassionate response. We engage in this practice to free our hearts and our minds from suffering and limitation and equally to release the world and others from suffering and limitation. And as we explore, as we deepen in practice, it becomes clear that the process of setting ourselves apart, separating ourselves from others, the world, parts of our own experience, is fundamental in the arising of suffering and limitation. And that the transformation of this is fundamentally concerned with seeing the emptiness of that. That what we are is not separate from what is around us. or what is within us. And this understanding lies at the heart of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this isn't something just to contemplate as a concept, but that we actually begin to sense and feel in the silence, in the stillness, as we practice through the days, there's a quite natural softening and an opening that takes place where we start to feel, it seems to me, very clearly a a dissolving of some of the solidity of our sense of who we are, a dissolving of some of the boundaries that we perceive or conceive in relationship to what is around us and what is within us. And we start to experience more fluidity. We notice this in the way that we're affected by experience, how we're touched. And sometimes when we're outside and standing or walking together or on our own, we might notice a a sense of resonance with another human being or a a living thing that speaks to us of something which we can't necessarily articulate, but we might recognize or understand as being touched so deeply that what it is that's touching us is within us, not outside us. We're not touched by that which is outside. We're touched by the recognition that in fact it is inside. Or perhaps we could say, not apart from. The very language and the perceptions of self and other, of inside and outside, are constructs. Ways of orienting that begin to lose their solidity as we awaken, as we travel this journey of deepening in wisdom and recognizing that we are this 
that we find ourselves amidst in ways that can't be entirely easily articulated but nonetheless can be felt, can be sensed, can be known directly beyond being a part of or connected to what we are is this in its manifestation and its underlying nature. What we are is this. And all that we encounter that we might conceive of as something other or someone other is simply ourself in a different form. The life that we are in a different expression. And contemplating, reflecting on this, we might see, we might recognize very clearly how suffering comes from, arises from fundamentally a process of separating. That is often expressed or seen also in a sense of making something, some part of ourself, some other person or group or collection of beings into that which is other. And in the making of them other, withholding a sense of value from. Leela spoke a couple of nights ago about that real finding of a sense of value in ourselves and how important that is as a practice. That withholding of value from is so deeply painful. And yet we might recognize that this takes place in our world and in ourselves so easily and so tragically in relationship to whatever may seem different than who we wish or believe or imagine ourselves to be. What appears different in who and those we call others In our world it's so painful to contemplate the suffering that arises from this. And yet it's important to understand that these realities of human experience in our society and culture of oppression and exploitation, racism and systemic white privilege, white supremacy, patriarchy and sexism, systemic male privilege, these structural prejudices and oppressions that come to bear upon human beings according to their, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, their religion, their class, age, ability, their neurology. And in many ways, beyond this too, where there may be some difference or divergence from the predominant, or the dominant culture. And just as, I'm, I'm not saying anything here that I imagine is news. Well, maybe it will come in a, a different form than you've heard before, but I imagine people coming to a retreat like this 
have some sensitivity and attunement to our world. And I imagine that's part of what brings you here. To see the suffering that is in the world. And that the suffering in the world is not removed from the suffering in our own hearts. It's painful to contemplate what takes place in our world. And to recognize that we in certain ways are participants in this, even if not by choice or intention. The oppression and exploitation of so many people, especially in the global south, historically and ongoingly. It's like our world is in a crisis of social justice, or social injustice, we could say. And to contemplate this is deeply painful. And it's not just this kind of seeing or treating others who appear different. We make the creatures and the plants and the ecology of our world somehow other too. And the tragic effect of this is expressed in the, the way our materialism and consumerism leads to this insatiable exploitation consumption of resource, the destruction of living systems and creatures and a kind of a failure to recognize value beyond material possession, ownership and consumption. Sometimes we can recognize also that this is how we relate to ourselves at times. These are not different dynamics. We treat ourselves as something to be used or consumed or exploited. Sometimes the way we engage in practice is if we're somehow forcing ourselves or driving ourselves. Not entirely in a relationship of respectful kindness towards ourselves. In the same way we collectively can recognize in our society that failure to be respectful to care for, to honour the well-being of, of life in ways that we could. And what we do to the world, we do to ourselves. Because we're not apart from it. And spiritual practice asks us to engage with what is our inner life to understand the processes and the dynamics of how we come to be entangled in unskillful and unhelpful ways of relating and responding and how to release ourselves from these. Not just at the individual and personal level, but in the collective, the social and the worldwide, we could say, level as well. The degree to which we care for or harm the world cannot be separated from the degree to which we care for or harm ourselves. And we can live in this form of kind of craziness really that thinks it's possible to disregard others while looking after oneself. This is not so. 
John Francis, an African-American ecological activist who spent many years walking in silence across that country, the United States. He said, we are the environment. We're not in the environment. We are the environment. And it's so interesting, isn't it? You know, there isn't somewhere else. We think that there's somewhere else. And what we're seeing in our world today is that there isn't somewhere else. You can't throw something away. Because it's not, there isn't an away. It comes back. Because it was never somewhere else. Except perhaps in our mind that thinks in disconnection so often. What does that mean for us? And again, I don't think this is going to be news to you, but our failure to collectively understand this is fundamental reason why we find ourselves in an emergency of climate destabilization and ecological degradation of a world on fire and at the same time dying. The Buddha's teachings of inner resourcing and development, of cultivating heart and mind, live within a vision of care for the whole world and all of life. Because we are not separate from this. And the cultivation of our own well-being cannot be separated from serving and engaging with the well-being of others around us, nearby and further afield. Compassion is the natural response of our hearts when we realize that we are connected, when we see that we are not separate from what is around us, as the hand might rub the foot when the foot is hurting. We think of hand as one thing and foot as another. But in fact, when you look at your hand and look at your foot, where does one stop and the other end? Where does one stop and the other end? We know in some way they are inseparable. But they look very different and they act in different ways. So too the expressions of life. And when we allow ourselves to be touched by this, and it's not easy to turn towards and to reflect on such things and I'm aware that this is not easy for us 
I don't find it easy to talk about. And yet it feels so important that we do talk about and contemplate such things. Because only by bringing ourselves into contact with what's happening in ourselves and with what's happening in the world can we start to see more clearly and find within ourselves the movement to respond. And compassion is very much a movement of response. It's not just a feeling. It's actually an active wish to relieve harm, to relieve pain, to protect against harm in relationship to others and in relationship to ourselves. And it's the natural response of our heart when we're connected, when we're open, when we're in touch. To see the shared nature of suffering. And it's something so sweet happens quite often in the small groups when we hear from each other about the struggles and the challenges in the retreat or in our lives. And so often the sense of being somehow separate with our particular difficulty or struggle or situation changes and it's interesting and to me amazing and beautiful how much support we derive how much we receive just through hearing and recognizing the sharedness of the situation the communality of our experience as human beings as living creatures as participants in a web of interconnected life equally that acknowledging, that hearing, that taking into our hearts allows us actually to hold the peace of us that is, the peace or the expressions of that which is difficult and challenging that are closest to us. To hold that more fully, but at the same time to open to what else may need to be held and responded to. And it requires us to actually be able to open to the tenderness, the pain, the rawness in ourselves. A lot of why it seems to me collectively we struggle to respond in an effective way to the needs of our world, of our society, of our communities for justice, for transformation is because we struggle individually and collectively to feel the pain that's here. We tend to want to blame someone. We tend to make it someone's fault. And in doing so, and of course there is responsibility, but in blaming, in judging, in rejecting, we disconnect from feeling the tenderness, the painfulness, the sorrowfulness, and the vulnerability of our condition. So there's something about coming into contact with that. And we've touched on that in many different ways over, these <coughs> over this time of retreat. What it is to come into contact with the vulnerability of our experience right here. And to see that this is a, a framework, a template, for allowing ourselves also to come into contact with the vulnerability of our world, of each other. And it's important to acknowledge that sometimes we can recognize that 
there's more here that I can hold or handle. And it's okay to back off. It's okay to say, that's enough for now. But backing off, whether it's moving away from a place that's painful in our own body or heart and saying, actually, I can't quite stay with that right now. I'll give it some space. Or whether it's moving our attention away from the information channels that might lead to deep grief or despair when we read about what's taking place in the world. Backing off is sometimes incredibly wise and appropriate and necessary. It's not that we need to constantly be pushing ourselves into contact with that which is distressing. But backing off isn't the same as turning away. It's not about closing our heart or in a way closing our vision from that territory, but just seeing how much space do I need right now in order to be able to find enough balance to respond. So sometimes taking a step back is not a withdrawal, but actually just finding balance and looking for the resource that we need in order to be able to engage. And so I just invite you to take a moment and notice how this lands for you. To be in this space and the tenderness, the openness of our practice and our journey and just the reflections to see what you need just now. Do you need to breathe? Does it feel like, yeah, it's okay, or, oh, that's a bit tender? How is it for us? How is it for you? I find it really difficult sometimes to sit with this kind of information and understanding of what takes place in our world that in certain ways I'm a part of. So the practice of forgiveness that I, we were sharing this afternoon seems very relevant here. We need to find some space in our hearts to acknowledge our shared responsibility. And of course there are those who may have more responsibility and there may need to be accountability. But what is it to keep our hearts open in this situation to find ways to step forward to act, to engage to have conversations to seek to bring about change to protect against harm to do what we can and it's always a question of doing what we can this is something that I've learned over many years and when I say learned I think I'm still continuing to learn here. It's not like it's a finished thing but it's always helpful to do something even if it's just a small thing. It might not resolve or fix the situation you're concerned with but just allowing the urge to act to find an expression and you know what I think of often is when I go up to London, but it's not just London these days. It, it happens in the, the local towns here and I find someone 
on the street who's obviously without a home and often asking for money. And I really don't know. Will it help them if I give them money? Will they use it for something that might be harmful to them? I don't know. So sometimes I might give some food. Sometimes I might just take a moment to stop and say, I see you, or I'm sorry you're here. How did this happen? And sometimes I realize that I don't have the space for that. Or something in me doesn't feel quite moved to go to the person. And it's just, and just walking past. But trying in my heart to just, okay, I wish well for you. Even if in this moment I can't engage with you. So that one allows oneself to feel in that moment the sense of, okay, I'm not choosing to pick this up here. I don't know, or I don't know what is needed here. But I can feel that this touches me. And I want to let myself be affected. And to me, that sense of honouring our wish to... It's like, you know, when you encounter a wild creature... Do you have that sense of, I'd like to give them something to eat? You know, wild creatures, they're looking for food. That's what they spend their time doing, apart from trying to make sure they don't become someone else's food. But that's a large part of it. And it's just this natural sense, I find. Oh, I'd like to offer the bunnies on the, on the lawn some grass. I mean, they've got grass as much as they want. But don't you notice that? That just sense of, huh. Of course, it probably scares the living daylight out of them if I came over to them with a handful of grass. So one doesn't do that. But just letting yourself feel, oh yeah, I would wish for you to have safety and be nourished and have all you need. And I would wish that too for each and every creature and being I encounter. And I would equally wish that safety and well-being for the, for the living things the plants and the trees and the, the green things that grow and the, the living systems that are woven from the, these living creatures and plants. And it seems to me every offering we make is important here. You know, every drop in the ocean, raises its level, makes a difference. In my 20s, when I was traveling in, in Asia and doing my sort of at first encountered meditation practice, and that I, I spent some time in Calcutta. I was visiting my grandmother, who I'd never met until I was in my mid 20s and traveled to Asia. Um, She's Bengali and uh, amazingly still alive, age 105. Um, she now lives in Sweden, which is another story. But um, I was staying with my grandmother. And as I said, I hadn't, hadn't met her until a little while before I came to India. And one of the things that I did while I was staying there was I went to visit one of the, 
one of the places run by the organisation of Mother Teresa, the, the charitable sort of activities there. And this was a, it was called Shishu Bhavan, which means really children's home. And it was a place for children, many very young children who on the streets of Calcutta had no home or who had no parents or whose parents had no resources to feed them and look after them. And they were here in this place. And I went with a friend. And the first we arrived, we met the sort of the, a lot of the children and they were just the, the ones sort of, sort of, I don't know, sort of two or three to five, six, seven running around and they were just so excited to see, you know, uncle, uncle, to see some people um, and us European looking people. And we spent some time with them and then we went into the room where the babies were. And we'd been told when we came, we thought, oh, maybe we could volunteer here. And they said, well, actually, in the culture in this country, we don't have men volunteering with children and babies. It's just not a cultural phenomenon. It's culturally not the thing. So you can visit, but you can't sort of become a regular here. Um, we went into this room full of babies. It was probably the size of this hall and there was cots more closely stacked together than your meditation mats. So there's just room to move between the cots and each cot had two babies. And as we walked into the room, these little babies turned towards us and there was two or three, two or three of the nuns of the order who were in there with them. And they had either um, bottles with food or bowls with water and cloths. And as we walked into the room and we saw there were some of them being fed, some of them being washed, the babies started turning towards us. And the slightly larger or stronger ones started to pull themselves up on the side of the cot. And all of them that could started to reach their hands out towards us. And it was like instantly we realized these little beings... They are getting fed and washed, but the nuns don't have time to pick them up and hold them. And that's what they want. And so we, we pick, started to pick up these little babies and just, like a limpet going on. They, dunk, oh, 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 so, so beautiful, so sweet. They just right there, hold me, connect. And then there's this room full of babies. So after a little while, sort of peeling it off, putting it down, picking up another one. Oh, wow. It was, it was heartbreaking and beautiful. And we went through that room for a couple of hours. We didn't get around all the babies. Part of me was thinking, I could spend my whole life doing this. And I can't imagine a better life a more meaningful, fulfilling or beautiful life than this. But after a couple of hours, the time for our visit, allowed time, was over. And we left. And there was some part of me that felt like my heart was broken completely and at the same time somehow so deeply touched and in a strange way healed by having done what we'd done, which was just all that we could in that situation. 
And there are so many situations like this in our world that call for us to offer ourselves in whatever way we feel able to do. One of the ways that compassion expresses itself, slightly different than that kind of tender holding quality that wants to just soothe and ease and extend a sense of loving to someone who may need it. Beautiful and important that is. And another way it sometimes shows is a fiercer quality. And the Buddha spoke of this particular quality of compassion as the quality that would be expressed. And he, he said, a mother, but let's say a parent of any or all genders, standing at the doorway to a room in which their child is resting and coming towards the room is someone who wishes to harm the child and the response of that parent is no way are you coming through that door I will protect with every fibre of my being to prevent the harm that is being threatened And this is a mudra, you sometimes see the Buddha. A mudra is a kind of a shape that the body can assume. And sitting like this is a mudra, sitting like Leela talked about, the touching the earth the other night, the Buddha touching the earth. And this is also a mudra. You might like to try it. If you want to, you don't have to. With whichever hand you might do this with, bring your fingers together, make the hand upright. Place it in front of you. What do you notice? Does anyone want to call out or say, what do you notice doing this? Some of you will have done this before. It's okay to say if you've done it before. Stop. Stop. It's a pretty clear message, isn't it? Does anyone else notice anything? That, like what does it feel like? Boundary, Boundary yeah? Strong. Feels strong, right? So there's strength, yeah. Just It's right there. Interesting, isn't it? Anything else? Fearlessness. Well, really interesting, because actually this is the Abhaya Mudra. And it's, that word translates as fearless. Or I would say courageous, because fearless suggests we don't have fear. And that's not what fearlessness is. Fearlessness is the willingness to act in accordance with what we see to be true and right, even if it's scary. Because if, if, there's, if there's no fear at all, then either it's not a, a real situation or sometimes we're just foolish. <laughs> but fearlessness, that sense of the willingness to not be limited by our fear and the way we engage in the world. And the interesting thing is it's strong, but it's not aggressive. You can say stop, or if you need to, back off. And it's a universally understood response. But nobody's getting hurt here. And this particular quality that this connects with, it's like the movement of anger that's trying generally to protect against harm or that reacts against harm. We see it gets distorted into a form that what I would call anger that kind of wants to hurt or doesn't care about harming another in order to protect. 
It may also be connected with a, a judging or a rejecting of another, a condemning, perhaps, if they've done something that's harmful or unskillful. Whereas this quality can still respect and even value that which it says no to. It's the action that would cause harm which is stopped or held at bay. The individual can still be received. And there's a, a sense of that in the, in the recovery world. It's working with addiction, the, 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 the sense of, of tough love where one might express compassion by choosing not to collude in something harmful, even if that seems harsh or confronting to someone else. And sometimes with ourselves, we have to challenge ourselves. There's a tough love sometimes with ourselves when we see, oh, just being nice to me, if that means just going along with my unhelpful patterning and what I tend to always do, that's actually not genuinely deep kindness or compassion. It's kind of a collapsing and a colluding. And likewise in our world, there are times when you might feel called to stand up and say, no, what's happening here is not okay. And I don't know how to bring it to an end, but I need to stand up and say, this has to find a way to cease. And uh, it's coming up towards four years ago, I found myself drawn to engage in climate activism with Extinction Rebellion and I was struck by how this sense of stop and no seemed to be represented by a willingness of people and I was joining in actions where just choosing to stand in the way of things continuing. And of course that looks annoying and frustrating for people and it is unfortunately and maybe necessarily to cause some obstruction to the simple continuance of things going on unaddressed. To stop, to say stop with one's body and heart, not just one's voice, was something that I found incredibly powerful and beautiful and challenging. And I'm not suggesting this is a path that someone is supposed to be taking. But it's amongst the paths that one might choose at times. And that one might also at times need to step back from. Because we need to understand when we engage in compassionate action that if we're always leaning into caring for another, protecting another, we can easily get out of balance. We need equally to care for and protect our own well-being. And in, in spiritual teachings, we often hear this sort of encouragement to selflessness, to self-sacrifice sometimes. And that's only true and authentic or appropriate as a counterbalance to its opposite. Whereas if we are only concerned with and only taking care of ourself or what we call me and mine, my world, my community, my people, my land, my, 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 then we really do need to open that out, take care of what we might then call other. But if we're 
only or primarily or always focused on taking care of other, looking after those who are further afield. We actually need to cultivate taking care of this one and these close to us too. So there's not a prescriptive sense with this of I should or I must, but to more sense it in terms of what could be possible here for my life, for this time, for this situation. What could be offered here to this world from this being in this location? And sometimes it might simply be a prayer. May you be well. May you be safe. May we find our way in this situation. Which for many is profoundly worrying and distressing and understandably so. May we find our way. Sometimes to let our heart rest in just our intention. Because we don't have any more than that to offer. And sometimes we can let our heart rest in the, in the responses that we make the actions that we take, the reaching out into the world to see what we can do to make a difference. It seemed to me in engaging with trying to bring to public attention, to conscious, the public consciousness and to bring pressure to bear on government for change with regard to climate, ecology and social justice, that these processes are not so different than the processes of what's involved in waking up as an individual. Of course, there's ultimately no waking up as an individual because we wake up to the fact that our individuality is inseparable. It has its particularity, but it's inseparable from the communality and the totality of life. And so we also need to recognize when we come to our limits where we might no longer be able to offer something out to another or to our world if we can't, if we feel like it's beyond me. We actually need to bring compassion to ourselves because we have our own limits. All of us, our own fear, our own suffering, a pain that we can't yet open to. Like perhaps with anger, sometimes, and there's a lot could be said about anger and forgiveness and having touched this territory this afternoon. I just want to name here also that, you know, sometimes we feel we can't forgive or we're not ready to forgive. Or to be honest, we don't actually want to forgive. And actually just to acknowledge, oh yeah, that's telling me something about my sense of pain or the sense of fear. And often the sense of, I don't want to forgive because I associate forgiveness with no longer protecting myself or no longer protecting against harm. And it's really important there to separate these two things out. One is to open our heart again, but that doesn't mean we don't still stay steady with our sense of saying no to what is harmful. 
But sometimes we have to forgive ourselves for our inability to forgive, to open our heart, to forgive ourselves for the anger that we can't at this time yet let go of. And it's so important that we do. Because that forgiving of ourselves for our own non-forgiveness is the place from which it can begin. Is the place from which we can start to let ourselves feel and care for the pain that we are carrying that limits us in what is possible for us but does not ultimately have to do so. So what we also need to do is ask for help. We can't do this by ourselves. We don't wake up by ourselves. Practice is something that arises. Uh, just want to use Leela's beautiful phrase because I'm feeling her with me still, even though I know she's hopefully back in Sweden by now. But that sense of friends on the path. It's a beautiful way of speaking about that Leela has of that sense of, oh yeah, doing this together. The, sp- the path of spiritual awakening and the path of healing our world, it is friends that we need to seek and it is also friends that we are invited to be to each other. And what it's also important to acknowledge is that outcomes are not in our control. We see that in meditation on retreat so clearly. We can't make it happen according to a plan or an idea by force of will or effort. But by orienting in a certain direction, it has an effect. It makes a difference. And it always makes a difference. Sometimes we may not be able to see that so clearly. But it is my trust and confidence that it does. And my experience over many, many years. So we're asked to both care deeply and act in the service of what we care about to allow ourselves to be touched. And so much of what happens in the world only happens because collectively and individually, but as a society, we've lost the sensitivity that would let us feel what's happening, that would tell us to change direction. Regaining that sensitivity is not easy but so important that we let ourselves feel that we seek support with each other and the natural world too the world of nature for all that it is vulnerable it equally has immense gifts to offer us and to let ourselves feel the support of the earth beneath us and the sky around us and the trees that stand and the grass that grows 
and grows and grows. I sometimes find great inspiration looking on the roads where occasionally a little green frond pokes its way up through the black asphalt tar and rocks and just goes, hmm, I think I'll grow here. And then it just slowly, the soft green tender thing just slowly puffs out and cracks it open. And it gives me a great sense of hope for life in the midst of the, at times, desolation, desecration, the aridity, and the loss of spirit that we see at times in our world expressed in the, the culture of consumption. That our own soft green life that we are can also contribute and does. And it's always interesting to me, again in this context, if one goes to or finds an old road that stopped being used as a road, you know it doesn't take long for the nature to take it back, to remake it into something green and living and soft and sweet. It doesn't take so long at all. So we don't know where our personal journeys will take us. We don't know where our collective journey will end. But it seems to me that even in the light of not knowing, nonetheless, whatever we give to it is part of what it will be. Whatever ways we find to do that will honour an alignment with the deeper truth that I trust will ultimately prevail. The truth of our connection and our connectedness. But not necessarily in the ways or in the time frames that I would wish for. That isn't guaranteed. And yet, just leaving the orphanage, Shishi Bhavan, in India all those years ago, there was that sense of heartbreak and somehow wholeness too from doing what one can. I think this is all that is asked of us. Not more than this, but this. So that our practice truly is for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and all of life. I'd like to finish with the, the words of Shanti Deva, who was a, a teacher, a poet, a mystic, and who lived in India in, um, I think, about the 7th century. And he spoke a lot about this compassionate heart of awakening in the service of all beings. He said, it's a kind of an aspiration for his life. He said, may I be a guard for those who are without protection. 
a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to go across the water. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed, and for all who need a helper. May I be a servant. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the trees of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of living beings, for all that lives, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. And for all living things, vast in number, like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Let's sit quietly for a few moments together. May we all, in our practice and in our lives, come together in the spirit of compassion. May we find our own way to express the care in our hearts for the well-being of ourselves and each other and the world. for the well-being of all of life. May our lives be offered and received with compassion.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.